0: Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in Central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, uh, we come before you today and we just want to uh, pray before we get rolling too far um, for uh, Jerry, who is in the hospital today, two days prior to her 96th birthday with covid um, she's the mom of Monique, mother-in-law of Mike, and we just pray that you would continue to heal her, that you draw near to her in her suffering. And Lord, we thank you that the hope of the gospel that we will hear preached, that we have already heard prayed, that we already joined in in singing, is hope for those who are both sufferers and saints. It's hope that reaches into our experience and reminds us uh, that this world is not our home, that we have the promise of life everlasting for those who come to Christ in faith, and that the, the portrait and picture of redemption is so compelling, so profound, that it invades the brokenness of our world. It reorients our hopes, our desires, and our wants. And Lord, as we see today, it gives us marvelous faith. We pray that your word accomplishes its work this morning. We pray this in your name, amen. What does it take, what do you think it would take, To cause Jesus to be amazed with you? What do you think Jesus would value most about your life? What do you think would please him, cause him to move towards you, to grant you salvation, to consider you, to give you assurance of faith through the promise of the Holy Spirit, to save you? We spend the whole of our lives wanting our bosses to be amazed at us, our kids, to be amazed at us, our love, interests, our peers, to recognize us. But how do you think Jesus gauges your worth, your value? What is most impressive about you in the eyes of God himself? Today we find a remarkable story as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke. In fact, today's story, which is also in the Gospel of Matthew, it stands unique from anything else in Jesus' ministry. As we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' fame has been increasing and crowds are flocking to him who are amazed at his power, amazed at his miracles, amazed at his message. And this would make sense. Jesus is amazing. He's miraculous. He is the second person of the Trinity in the flesh, fully God and fully man. Even to those who don't believe his message, they are amazed at his mighty works, the signs of the kingdom which accompany him. But what if I told you today that this amazing, miraculous, and marvelous Jesus is actually amazed at someone else, someone perhaps just like you? The privilege we have in this text today is encountering Jesus's only interaction in all of what's been shared with us in scripture, of Jesus marveling at someone. Today we meet somebody who amazes Jesus Christ himself. You see, it's one thing for my kids to see me as amazing. It's quite another thing for Jesus to see me as amazing. So what do you think it takes for Jesus to be amazed at you? You might think we love good doctrine here. We know the doctrine of total depravity, that is, that we are sinful. In every process of our mind, we are broken. You might think, well, Jesus isn't amazed at us because we're sinful. But that's not what we see in this text. Jesus marvels at a sinner just like you and me. But then you might think, well, Jesus would marvel at something that we find marvelous by worldly standards. That is power, might, success, generous works. But by the end of this text, we will see that Jesus does find something amazing and it's hidden in a posture the world finds foolish. Today we will see that Jesus doesn't marvel at mighty works, but he marvels at humble faith. And our question today then is what is the anatomy, what is the nature of faith that causes Jesus to marvel? What does it say about our own hearts, about the way we view our world, those around us, and most specifically about Jesus himself? And our big picture today is this, is that marvelous faith views everything through the lens of Jesus's value and Jesus's power. Marvelous faith, to put it simply, first marvels at who Jesus is in light of who we are. And we're going to see this in two primary ways. We're going to be in Luke, as Daniel read, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, In verses 1 through 5, we're going to see a statement of worldly worth. And then in verses 6 through 10, we're going to see a contrast, and that is a statement of gospel worth. So having this framework in mind, you've already heard this story read, but I'd like you to read it with me again and see if you can sense the tension in this text. This is Luke 7, beginning in verse 1. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with him, And when he was not from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers unto me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowds that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And so here we have the story of a servant, of a slave being healed, and yet the main character is the servant's master, the Roman centurion. And it's in light of this that we encounter our first statement today, and that's a statement on worldly worth. And we're actually going to see this in two ways. First, we're going to see a challenging of worldly worth, and then oppositely, we're going to see a championing of worldly worth. And we see right off the bat the systems of worldly worth being challenged. If you recall, what we spent the last four weeks in the Sermon on the Mount and the first couple weeks leading up to that. So the last kind of six or seven weeks, we've seen Jesus doing some unique things in his ministry. As he's gaining fame, more and more Israelites are flocking to Jesus. He's appointed 12 apostles, 12 Jewish men to be his special ministers of the message of the gospel. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he just gave his disciples clear marching orders on what a life of following Jesus should look like. He's given men and women a picture of how this new Israel is to live in contrast with the world. And so we would imagine that the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the true living Israel, after giving all of these instructions that what would follow immediately after these events are the works of Jewish apostles applying themselves to this truth in profound ways. And the culture of this day, much like our own day, was heavily ethnocentric. People took pride in their identity, their national identity. They resisted from the aspect of that. They understood themselves from the aspect of that. Their diversity introduced unique challenges. And at this time, Israel was occupied by Rome. As we discussed earlier, it was under the Roman general Pompey that uh, uh, Russian, Roman forces, Russia has a tendency to just invade whatever, and so we could maybe say that. Uh, But Roman forces rolled into Jerusalem with Pompey and with great bloodshed, put down a Jewish uprising. And from that point on, Israel learned its place, Rome withdrew, but they left Roman legions in the area. And those legions were meant to be peacekeepers, Roman influencers, and watchmen keeping eyes on Israel, which had a history of rebelling. In fact, one of the very disciples Jesus called, we met earlier in chapter six, his name was Simon the Zealot. And when it says zealot, it's not just describing his demeanor, he belonged to a political party called the Zealots. Those were Jewish individuals who were zealous against Roman interest. They were zealous for a free and privileged Israel. We, and speaking into the midst of this racial and political tension, Luke introduces a challenge to that, doesn't he? It was, as we see in verse 1, it was after Jesus finished saying all these things. In the hearing of all these Jews, he goes into a Jewish city of Capernaum. After the Sermon on the Mount, we are called to love our enemies, to do good to those who cannot repay us. But the first person to love their enemy, the first person to do good to someone of a social status who could not return that favor, was not a Jewish priest, not an Israelite apostle, but a Roman Gentile, upper-class soldier occupying the very land that God had promised to his people, Israel. You see, despite the good relationship the Jews had with the centurion, this would have been a challenge to what was expected to be valued. Jesus was the liberator of Israel, the one who's bringing all of God's promises to bear on God's promised people. And here he is helping the nation who is occupying Israel. And not only is he concerned with this Roman soldier, he's concerned with the Roman soldier's servant. It's not only a bad social order, but it's the lowest tier of that social order. How could Jesus expend his ministry power here? That's because the ministry and the good news of Jesus Christ is a challenge to our own expected places of value and worth. Jesus is actively shaping all throughout the gospel who is worthy of his ministry and who can follow him. We've seen this all throughout Luke. Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. The gospel challenges, we know the gospel challenges our places of worth and power. And yet, don't we also know that despite what we know to be true in Scripture, we often find ourselves championing those same places of value and power when it seems to benefit us? And we actually see this in this text. Interestingly enough, it is the Jews who boast in the perceived worth of the Roman centurion. And so even though Jesus is challenging these power structures, it is the Jewish elders who affirm these power structures. This is the second thing we see, a championing of worldly worth. Look back at Luke 7 verses 1 through 3. After he had finished, saying all, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us, our synagogue." So now we see a little bit more clearly as we're kind of circling this text, the problem here. There's a Roman centurion who has a slave who is sick, but the slave is highly valued to him. So valued that this Roman centurion humbles himself and appealed to the authorities of the very people he was ahead of in terms of power and prestige He went to the elders, the Jewish elders of the town of Capernaum, to see if they would be willing to go to Jesus, to see if Jesus would then come to the centurion's house and heal this servant. And remarkably, these elders go. And that's because if there's one thing we know about the centurion at this point, it's that he is a really good dude. And this is something where I think on a superficial level, all of us in our increasingly politically divided culture might look at the centurion and take some notes on how he lived, though sitting on the opposite side of the political spectrum. He valued this servant who was beneath him so much that he was willing to humble himself, almost abase himself, going to those who he was ruling over. He apparently had a good enough relationship with these Jewish leaders that he was granted an audience to even make this request. And these Jewish leaders respected him enough that they were willing, despite their differences, to go to Jesus. And even being away from the centurion's ear, they speak of the great and good things the centurion had done for them. Without him even hearing. He's not there twisting their arm behind their back. They leave him And they go to Jesus and recount the wonders of this centurion. But do you notice the posture in which they couch all of this in verse 4? He is worthy to have you do this for him. Why did the Jews think that Jesus should care for this Gentile centurion? Because look at all he's done. Look at all of his work. And there's great irony here, isn't there? When we read the Bible, we need to remember that we're reading about real people in a real place, in a real world. This isn't just fairy book stuff. Like, let's consider the culture here. This man might have been the world's most beneficial centurion. He might have built them the world's greatest synagogue. But guess whose exorbitantly charged taxes built the synagogue? The tax from these people that the Roman centurion is, a, is, is sitting there as a representative of. There were lots of people who loved Israel, But never in the rest of the scope of this book do we see Jewish elders coming to Jesus about a fellow Jew saying, this man loves Israel. In fact, what we've seen with the Pharisees so far is that when Jesus helped someone who had a withered hand, they were offended. They didn't say like, look at this man. He loves Israel. He is one of us. Would you heal him, Jesus? They say, Let's see if Jesus heals this man and then we'll know that we have caught Jesus. And here is this Roman centurion who is a representative of the enemy and the Jewish elders come to him not with suspicion, but clearly stating all he's done. Why? Because they know this man Unlike the lepers, unlike the man with the withered hand, unlike the lame man, this man has power and prestige that could be of benefit to them, that of continuing to be kind to this centurion, the centurion might continue to be kind to them. The Jews themselves are boasting in worth based off of worldly value, even if that value system was simultaneously subjecting them. And we shouldn't be surprised that when approaching Jesus, we boast in worldly accomplishments. That's our default. What we should be surprised at is that it is the Jewish leaders who are doing this. Here we see how easy it is for us to forget the posture of the gospel and fall into the power structures of the world. The Jews, of all people, should know that God does not value the things of the world, that God does not look at mighty works and feel compelled to do something as a result. Remember what God spoke to his people Israel when he told them why he was going to redeem them, why he was going to be their God, and they were going to be his special people. Consider two passages in the book of Deuteronomy. First, Deuteronomy 7, verses seven and eight. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out, that's out of Egypt, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant with those who love him and his commandment to those of a thousand generations. Jesus isn't impressed by number or powerful standards. He chose them when they were few and insignificant. If you just turn the page in your Bible, we see this in Deuteronomy 9, verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, You see, there's this tendency in Israel, whenever God would work to save them, they'd say, of course he would save us, we're Israel. And God had to constantly say, yeah, and you guys were the losers, you were the run of the litter. You weren't by worldly standards mighty, you weren't by spiritual standards righteous, but I chose to love you because I am the covenant keeping God. God. If anyone should know that great deeds done by human standards don't indebt God's service, it would have been the Jews. But here we see how easy it is, even for us, living daily life in this world, to displace what we know to be true about the nature of God's love and supplement it with the values of what the world loves. We know how God works. We've seen it in the story of Scripture. And yet as we live in a world that has different values, different structures of worth, and different markers of power, we can't help but fall into that same rut of thinking. This is what happened when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. They were in slavery. They were crying out to God. God answered their cries. He delivered them out by a mighty hand. And what's the first thing they, do, they long for? Man, Egypt provided food for us. Egypt provided security for us. Yeah, because you were their slaves. (laughs) You have protection from power, but the power was also condemning you. But they long for it, not realizing that they are enslaved to it. And that is the problem of our own hearts. The problem of our hearts is not that we don't want the freedom that comes from an encounter with God. The problem is is that we want God while also believing that God must recognize and use the worldly sources of power, of value, and of worth if we are to actually be safe and to thrive. You see, what the elders did was a generous thing. They went and pleaded with Jesus, but we cannot move towards Jesus, even with the spirit of generosity or evangelism or whatever you might call it. We cannot move towards Jesus promoting the standard of worldly values for someone else if we do not also subtly believe those values for ourselves. They promoted it for the centurion, and you have to imagine they promoted that because they believed that was what they needed as well. Brothers and sisters, if there's one thing I fear more than anything in the church today is that we recognize the political cultural wars that are at stake. And we hope that we can influence culture, win culture, redeem culture with the same power and same rules which simultaneously pollute culture. What we've seen in the last 20 years of American Christendom is we will put up with a lot if it only puts us on the right side of the world's power dynamic. If it only indebts us to the power brokers and culture creators of our day. I've always been fascinated by the way in which the church fawns over movie stars, sports stars, or celebrity pastors who confess faith in Jesus, but whose life and whose teaching even run completely contrary to the person of Jesus. I've been in Christian bookstores. I've seen authors and speakers who have had numerous affairs, political scandals, and suspect ministries championed as the wise, powerful representatives of Christianity. Why do we do that? We do it because we know the allure of worldly worth. We say, look at all they've done. He is worthy of it. Imagine if all of that power, if all of that influence could be used for the growth of the gospel. If I had a nickel every time the next pastor celebrity disqualified himself from ministry and immediately people began to clamor for him to be restored, not because of heartfelt repentance, but because of all the good he had done, we would pay off our building fund in a week. But how quickly our hearts go to say, but look at all he's done. Isn't he worthy of it? How many of us have seen The bumper stickers or the t shirts that say, Stop plate tectonics. So, plate tectonics is the movement of the Earth's crust. It's why Yellowstone is gonna blow up someday and and why there's mountains that are created and volcanoes and geysers. It's how the Earth kind of regulates the core. And the joke is, you can't stop it. It's going to happen. To stop plate tectonics is to do the impossible. And the truth is, we cannot stop our hearts. From valuing the worth and power systems of the world, unless there is a worth, value, and power system which interrupts it. We will inevitably play by those same rules if all we believe are those same worthy standards. And we live in a world of powers. Open up a history book. Realize that there is always two sides of history. There is those who want to champion power for their own ends, or those who recognize that power introduces a problem, and so we must eliminate any sort of power variables, any sort of power structures. But God is powerful, God is distinct, God is an authority. And it's actually in his power that there is safety. The safety and belonging that we look to the powers of the world and either think we can have or look at that and we begin to fear. The solution from a Christian worldview is not to get rid of power, but to find the right power. It is to find a power and worth structure which can actually give us what we want. Something with Paul, which Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 3 through 5. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." There is something that disrupts the worth structures of our world. And it is the power of God born in weakness by humans. And we begin to see this disruptive value shift in our narrative in the book of Luke in verses 6 through 10, if you'd read with me. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house of the centurion, or when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, that's the centurion sent friends to Jesus saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go and he goes, another come and he comes and to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So did you see the wild inversion that happened in this text? Here we have a centurion who was part of a prestigious group of military leaders. And more than that, One became a centurion in the Roman army not only for being, you know, the Chuck Norris of foot soldiers, of having great success on the battlefield, but it was also a character position. To be a centurion, you had to execute a certain amount of self-discipline, self-control, generosity, and ethical behavior. The centurions were the noble heroes of Rome. They were everything our action movies fantasize about. In other words, they were worthy of it all, which is why the Jewish leaders go to Jesus and they echo those same value standards. He is worthy for you to do this to him. But then what does the centurion say? I'm not worthy. (laughs) The one who everyone sees as powerful and successful is also the one who has this transformative encounter. You see, something happened here where the centurion hears about Jesus for the first time, hears of his miracles and says, he can heal my servant. And so he sends the Jews saying, tell Jesus to come and heal him. But by the time that same Jesus gets near, it's almost that his posture has changed. He says, stop, don't come any further. Just say the word. What happened? Values have shifted. And they shifted in direct relationship to the centurion's experience and understanding with Jesus. And this is where we see our second point today. And this is a statement of gospel worth. We've seen how the world values things, but how does the gospel value things? When I worked um, with our campus ministry at GCF, we had uh, a popular hip-hop artist come and speak at one of our retreats. And I thought it would be a great fun idea to have one of our GCF staff people engage him in a rap battle. I won't say who that staff person was, but his name rhymes with Stephen Kassoon. And, and, and I thought this was a really good idea. It was gonna be fun and playful. And then the day drew near. And I realized that here is a man who has spent decades of his life, crafting this skill. And I was about to make him go battle someone who he has no business battling, which would in turn completely make a mockery of him. (laughs) That what I was asking him to do was entirely below him and shameful for him to do. And I think it was this kind of growing realization that the centurion had in this story. This seemed great, until that person of great worth began to draw near to him. He reached out to Jesus because he knew he had enough power to heal, but that same healing powerful Jesus drew near to his house, and the closer Jesus got, the more doubt and uncertainty crept in. Why? Because he was having a growing encounter with Jesus. It's not that what happened between verse five and verse six is the centurion became less of a centurion. It's not that he became less noble in the eyes of culture. It's not that his men were less powerful, but as Jesus drew nearer and nearer, this man of war was turned into a man of great weakness. And that's because it is encounters with Jesus that show us who we really are. It's encounters with the value of something greater that frames our own perceptions of our worth. And we'd like to think that these moments of clarity happen when we're here gathered as the church and we're singing praise and worship songs and we come to the mountain of glory and everything is great and we see it so clearly. But as we continue in the book of Luke... There are three disciples who ascend the mountain with Jesus, who see him transfigured before their eyes, who hear God the Father speak again, who sees representations of all the law and the prophets disappear, leaving nothing but Jesus, and there's no clarity. (laughs) They still don't get it. And yet what we see in Luke are that the clearest moments of gospel confession come when men and women are confronted with their greatest limitations. It was Peter standing on a sinking boat with his Lord who said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Peter's catch was remarkably successful and lucrative but it was diminished by the power of the one who stood in the boat with him. Here is the centurion who commands a hundred men who can say, go, and they go, come, and they come, do this, and they do it, but he cannot even help his servant. And as Jesus approached, he got the gut feeling of inferiority and helplessness as something greater moved towards him. He was stuck, struck by what one theologian calls a holy shyness. He's writing that anyone who studies God by proxy studies themselves. It's in seeing the unlimited nature of Jesus that we see the limitations of ourselves. He says this, he says, As soon as we consider what it means that we futile, finite, sinful creatures should know God, a holy shyness takes hold of our souls. We're the one who is like, yes, this is great. We get a little shy, a little self-conscious. And what led to this holy shyness? This marvelous faith that followed, what was the anatomy of it? Well, we can tease out four realizations the centurion had, which changed the perception of his own worth and produced a faith, faith which amazed Jesus. And we'll touch on these briefly. First, we see he had an understanding of Jesus as Lord. The centurion would have had innate authority, and social privilege over Jesus, regardless of what kind of teacher he was, simply because Jesus was a Jew. On top of that, being a centurion, he was indoctrinated with the code that Caesar was dominus et deus, both Lord and God. But remarkably, the first word of the encounter of this nearness to Jesus was not that Caesar was Lord, but that Jesus was Lord. It was not that Jesus, this peasant, could enter into this sort of client patron economy that was there, and this client could help the patron, but it was that the centurion had become the servant. That Jesus was the authority and the Lord. He was not like Caesar, nor was he like anyone who he himself ruled over. And that is because, second, he had an understanding of Jesus as exceedingly worthy. An understanding of Jesus as exceedingly worthy. My wife has a particular gift in hospitality. She likes to make the house prepared for company. And every now and then, my wonderful gift as a husband shows up when I tell her that I forgot to tell her that someone's coming over that night. And what she does is she readies herself and then begins to ready the house to make the house worthy of company. And the centurion had the same concern when he heard Jesus was coming to his house, but his primary concern was not that his house was unworthy, but what? That he was unworthy. (laughs) He said, this house is completely fitting for me. I'm a centurion. I'm a celebrity. I'm a powerful person. I probably have a robot vacuum. This house is a great house, but to be fitting for me is not to be fitting for you. You deserve something better. He was confronted that he himself was not enough, that he was not fitting large enough or significant enough for Jesus to come, and therefore Jesus was not even worthy to enter into his house. He understood the scandal it would have been for Jesus, the king of the Jews, to stoop so low as to enter the house of a Gentile oppressor of Israel even more so that Jesus would do it out of a spirit of compassion and gentleness. Third, he had an understanding of how insufficient he was. He says in verse seven that he did not presume to go to Jesus. So that word presume is actually the verbal form of the word we see in verse four as worthy. And so he is saying quite literally that I was not worthy. I did not consider myself worthy enough to come to you, which is why he sent the elders It was already this posture of humility. Jesus wouldn't listen to me. I have no hearing before this king, but someone else ought to go. And I chose that word, understanding how insufficient he was, carefully. Because, in contrast to Jesus, we are insignificant. But this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel and and God's word is better than anything we could ever imagine. Because while in comparison to Jesus, we are insignificant, none of us are insignificant before the Lord. We are made in the image of God, in his own likeness. Our greatest value marker is not what you achieve in relationship to the standards of this world, but what you achieve in relationship to your intimacy with the creator of the world. Jesus does not move towards insignificant people because Jesus made people. God as the creator did not create insignificant things. Weak people and bad artists create insignificant things. The God of the universe creates insignificant, am I saying the right word? Insignificant things. The God of the universe creates things of great significance. And so God moves towards those who are significant because they're made of the image of God but who are woefully insufficient. That is that though made in the image of God, our sin has caused us great failure. We are insufficient to look, to behave, or to act or deserve anything other than what we are, broken people, sinful people living in a broken world. It's one thing for this centurion, which would have been counterculture for the day, to act on behalf of his servant. It's quite another thing for Jesus to act on behalf of insufficient sinners. But that's what Jesus does in the gospel. He moves towards people not because of what they might be able to provide by their own power, but what the might of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ might provide in and of itself. And this is what led the centurion to say, I understand authority. Centurions were the, the backbone of the Roman military at that time. And there was the foot soldier, the individual soldier, and they would be gathered into units of eight to ten men. And ten of those units would be gathered as a century, and they would be led by a centurion. But then the centurions were also under men. The Jewish historian Josephus described this structure in this way. He said, of, this is the structure of the Roman military. He said, in the morning, the soldiers go, every one, to their centurion's. And these centurions to their tribunes to salute them, with whom all the superior officers go to the general of the whole army, who then gives them, of course, the watchword and other orders to be by them carried to all who are under their command. And so this centurion, who is king of his own domain in Capernaum, understood that he too was under authority. He knew the powerful word of authority, which called him to response. And he knew, that Jesus was one who was not under authority, but in authority. And this is where we see the fourth posture of marvelous faith, that is an understanding of Jesus' power. And here's where I want us to just sit under this for a little bit. What would these Jewish elders have done to have the exact same power and privilege as this centurion? Isn't that what they wanted? Oh, that they would be the rulers. That they could speak softly because they carry the big stick. In our world, have you ever looked at those in positions of worldly worth or of political power and said, if only I could have that. But here, the one who has that speaks. And what does he say I, too, am under authority. There is no more honest confession than every place of worldly power except for I, too, am a man under authority. Every position of power, as influential and seemingly untouchable as it might be, is under the authority. The mighty dollar is under the authority of inflation and depression. The mightiest and most sustainable man in the world shows his subordination the moment he has to put on a rain jacket or turn on a light switch. We can't control and are in fact controlled by the weather, the sun, the turning of time which moves regardless of your opinion or not. And the Bible calls us what this subordination actually is. It's called mercy. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says that it is God who sends rain and sun on the just and the unjust. Why? So that you might see the authority of your father in heaven. And the centurion here sees that we are all under authority. To climb the highest ranks by worldly power is to still have no power to fix our greatest need. We might, by worldly standards, and this is the danger of worldly standards, is that we can amount to much. You can accumulate much. You can be worthy of much. But by the standards of Jesus, it amounts to little. But here, Jesus, the word-speaking, authority-worthy God comes to those who are insufficient and in great need. And the good news of this text is that he is not troubled to care. He is not troubled by your lack of worth. In fact, he came for it. This is what amazed Jesus Jesus was not amazed that he loved Israel. He was not amazed that he oversaw a hundred men. He was not amazed of his military conquest. He was not amazed at his rampant generosity. Jesus was amazed that he had eyes to see the value of Jesus and the need of his own heart. Jesus marveled at that. What does marvelous faith look like? It looks like seeing the emptiness of everything else and the sufficiency of Jesus and seeing that you could get all of the worth by worldly standards and your greatest and most honest confession when in contrast to Jesus is I have no worth. I did not presume that I did anything worthy of your salvation. You see, Jesus healed the servant here, but that's really the, the like footnote. Of course, Jesus healed the servant. He's the son of God. That's what he does. But what Luke is drawing us to is not the health of the servant, but the heart of the centurion. He gets it. He has begun to see life through the value of Jesus. And so I want to pose two questions to you as we consider this in closing. And it has to do with how you assess your own value systems in your life. First, does your perception of worldly worth keep you from repenting? Are you unwilling to confess your sins to God or to others because you fear what that might diminish by the measure of man? Are you fearful that coming to grips with your sin harms your perceived value in the world? If that's you, I hope you see the gospel speaks into that. That what we ought to be most ashamed of is not sight that sees things as it is, but a blindness that refuses to acknowledge the truth. That we are not worthy, but Jesus is not troubled by your sin for all who come to him. Second, does your perception of worldly worth keep you from obeying? There are acts of obedience which look foolish, weak, and pointless by the power and worth standards of the world. Try this, try not having the last word in an argument on Facebook or with your coworker. See how powerful you feel. You won't think I am the wise man in Proverbs who does not need the last word. (laughs) You will think everyone else here thinks I lost the argument and I'm stopping because I have nothing left to say but we do not cage ourselves by the world's values. There are moments of obedience which will cause you to look less adventurous on Instagram, to have less toys in your garage and less notches of success on your resume or your bedpost, but the gospel speaks of a value and comfort of finding worth in submission to Jesus's value structure, which is the cross and not that of the world. What makes you amazing? Consider in closing, Jeremiah 9, verses 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Psalm 33, verses 13 through 17. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth who fashions the hearts of them all and observes the, all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it cannot rescue. But consider this, 1 Corinthians 26-31. through 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what the world fears as terrifying is precisely what Jesus views as marvelous. Marvelous faith flies like a dart into the heart of all the world treasures. Marvelous faith transforms us into servants of one another and lovers of Jesus, and it begins not in a boasting of what we've done or what we are able to do, but a humble confession of what only Jesus can do. And I can tell you this, as I've sat with this text, I can't quite chase all the places where my heart is influenced by the power and worth of the world. But just as I've looked this week with the mirror of scripture, I can tell you it runs deeper than I ever thought. But God grants us grace to see that we might surrender our value and our worth and come to the one who is not troubled with our weakness, but has come to heal those who need him. Let's be a church of marvelous faith. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world where now more than ever who we are and our value is more quantifiable than it has ever been. We can open apps, check our bank accounts, our investment portfolios, We can see how liked we are. We can see how many people share us, comment, affirm our positions. But Lord, the way of the gospel is different than the way of the world. Lord, something miraculous happened in the heart of this century and I pray today that it happens in our hearts that by the nearness of Jesus, our values are transformed and that you, the creator of the world, marvel at us because we see you with clarity and we respond with honesty. We pray all this in your name. Amen.